Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about the high investment game. Are they worth the commitment, the sacrifice, and the hours of your busy life? So Rob, I have been playing a large amount of Dark Souls 3, which just came out this week. It is the fifth game in From Software's series of games that are way too difficult for their own good, although that's what a lot of people like about them. And it's, oh God, I have such a love-hate relationship with this game, and it just takes up so much of my life and sort of my mental faculties to, to keep playing it, and it, it's making me a miserable person. And it kind of made me think of this topic about, you know, sort of whether these games that require so much of your life, so much of your time, you know, so much of your brain at the moment when you're playing them, are they, are they kind of worth it, you know, at this stage in the game? Basically. Oh, man, Danielle, I feel like we are standing on the precipice of another witness level uh, quagmire. <laughs> like, we might is, be. Like, like, we're going to find like gaming's other Vietnam, right? Like, the witness was our Vietnam and this is our <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, and in 10 years, we'll still be getting emails uh, yep. from people like still up in the mountains fighting the good fight for From Software. <laughs> and they're planting their special banner in the sand a little bit. Yeah. It's so. <laughs> You know, well, let me ask you uh, first. Like, have you like have you meshed with the other uh, Souls games? Going back to Demons, uh, Bloodborne. Like, was this is this a series? Is this a style that's appealed to you more or less before? Oh God, yes and no. So I played like five minutes of Demon Souls when it first came out in two thousand nine, and I was kind of like, okay. You know, and I watched my roommate play it. You know, remember MJ? It was MJ. Uh, and like, we, you know, he played it for a while. He kind of got to the first few bosses and, you know, we would pass the controller a little bit. And I was kind of like, okay, I get, I get what's going on here. This is cool. It's a game that's hard and things that are hard, you know, make you kind of want to be better for it. They, you know, I, I see what's happening here. This is sort of a pretty old school kind of training concept. Um, and then I didn't play another one until Bloodborne last year. And I played through all of Bloodborne. I made it through Bloodborne, which I was very proud of myself for doing. Although I definitely, you're just, at this point, I'm just playing it to get further. And I'm just playing it to, like, rub the game's nose in the sand. Which, uh, I guess, you know, it's not like the game actually has feelings. Um, but I want to hurt this game's feelings. And that's kind of why I keep playing it. Okay. It appeals to me on some level. It really does. I mean, like, I like to think that I'm a person who likes to do difficult things because they're worthwhile. You know, like, I like boxing. I'm, you know, learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I do these things that are that are difficult and rewarding, and I feel like I'm learning, and I feel like I'm getting somewhere with them. Um, and, and then there are other days, obviously, where I go, and I feel like I've just sort of whiffed it and it, and I suck, but at least I feel like there's a progression there. So psychologically speaking, I get it, but it there is a pretty big disconnect for me when it's sort of uh, a game versus sort of a real life activity. <laughs> it's interesting, interesting the parallels actually between this and our, this and our witness conversation, right? Like the witness, yeah. you want to learn like a new intellectual skill with the same effort you're putting into uh, the witness. And here it's like you've got no problem showing up to a gym and training your ass off, uh, you know, five nights a week. But Dark Souls uh, asking you to, you know, beat your head bloody against the wall uh, five <laughs> nights a week starts to starts to rub you the wrong way. 
It does. It really does. And I kind of do wonder where that comes from. I'm, obviously, there's sort of the surface level. Well, duh. You know, when you're learning a skill in real life, you you there's a certain amount of reward to it, right? I'm even if you're, I'm never going to be a great boxer. At least I'm, you know, getting in shape, and and it feels like I'm learning a new skill, and it's good for me to get out of the house and go to the gym. Like there are definitely sort of just rewards associated with that that you can kind of apply in a more general sense. Um, but you know, I obviously. I spent a lot of my life playing video games, right? I'm obviously not the kind of person who's like, well, it was a waste of my time to play a video game because it's, you know, yeah, that might be true on some level, but I, I don't usually feel that way. So it's it's sort of like, I think what I'm coming up against is this idea of commitment. The fact that I need to commit so much to get better at this game. And I'm not I'm not really naturally great at this kind of game. I mean, not nobody is, but I guess I, I guess what I mean is, the games that I've played in my life and that I've spent the most amount of time with in my life have not been this kind of game. So there's a there's a very steep learning curve for me, obviously. And I'm just butting up against like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to feel this frustrated for the pleasure of getting better and progressing? And I don't know that it is. I really don't know that it is. I, I think it is for some people. And to them, I say, God bless. Uh, but I, I, you know, despite me saying maybe it's not worth it, I, I'm still playing it. I still kind of can't put it down. <laughs> you know, D- Danielle playing games that that hurt her is becoming a, a theme of the show. <laughs> uh, like, I, like the witness, I was like every week is like, man, I hate the witness. I was playing the witness a lot lately. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but. You know, so I mean, I, like, I'm interested to see like why you kept going with it. Because for me, uh, my my soul's experience kind of began and ended uh, with uh, in a night and a day, basically, oh, wow. uh, with Demon yeah. Souls. Okay. And it was, you know, peak brainy sphere, right? Like everyone's blogging oh, about Demon Souls, yes, and like yes. this is, man, this is what gaming used to be, and it could be again. And isn't it refreshing to encounter a game like this? Uh, and so eventually, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna give it a shot. And I started playing it on on my PlayStation Three, and there were a few things I really liked. I thought it was a gorgeous game. Yeah, uh, it had this really like beautiful, moody aesthetic. Um, it, it sort of looked like you know your standard uh, like dark high fantasy type thing. I guess you call yeah. that low fantasy, but you know what I mean. Yes, um, yes. It, it sort of had that look, but then also it was you know it was slightly moodier. Uh, and, and more more artistically pleasing, I guess. There's a little more depth to it. So there's a lot of things I loved about the presentation of that game. Uh, and if you remember, it starts with uh, after you get killed by the unbeatable boss at the start. Uh, it sends you into limbo, basically. Yeah, then the real game begins, and you're, you're sort of trapped going to these various uh, locations, running these levels uh, in this roguelike from hell. Yeah. And that first level is you're going through this ruined castle uh, in the wake of uh, a siege, right? And I spent probably, you know, I got up early that morning and started playing uh, that level. And I think by like noon or like 1 p.m., I had finally gotten pretty far into the level. Um, and then I was like, I was in an all new place and the, I, there are a couple different directions you could go at the start of the level. And I was in this, I, I had just gotten through this, this part that had always been giving me trouble. And I encountered this, 
this long stairwell down uh, through this like empty void, uh, oh, basically, God. and it's a, yeah. it's a it's it's a medieval tower, right? So there's no there's no railing. You, like, you can just go plummeting off the side. So I'm going around this this uh, this, this long uh, stairwell, and at the bottom, I can see these lights flickering, and they're <laughs> moving closer towards me. I'm like, that's okay. I wonder what's going on here. I keep going down, and then I realize the lights are definitely moving towards me. And there are these like brand new monsters, these brand new brand new enemies I'd never seen before. Uh, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And they're like Molotov like cocktail thrower guys. And oh, um, you know, I, I I try to block one and just eat a ton of damage, but it doesn't kill me. Um, and then the next one, uh, I, I try to sort of time the time the arc of the throw and sort of run under to get at the guy. Um, you know, don't don't make it. Uh, you know, the, the, the fire hits me, I'm taking damage, um, more cocktails are coming down and like suddenly like the entire, like there's nowhere to stand safe and it ends with me, uh, plummeting off the edge oh, uh, as I try to sort of sidestep past these guys, uh, and I die. <laughs> <sighs> and I've been playing for, oh boy, like probably five, six hours, uh, that yeah. morning. And I just... It wasn't that I like it wasn't that I didn't like the game. Like I kept playing it. I kind of couldn't stop playing it. But that was the moment like I had stuff to do that day and that was the moment I realized like this is just not a game I can play right now, yeah. right? Like my job requires me moving on to other things and I'm not having that much fun. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm kind of pissed actually. Uh that basically what the game did here was it set me up to fail. Here's a new thing you've never seen before ever. You have no no idea what the trick is to deal with these guys or even what they do until they've done it. And I was just like, you know, to hell with this. Uh, it's <laughs> it's not my cup of tea. And I kind of didn't look back. Um, yeah, you're not wrong to do that. <laughs> right. But in the meantime, they became kind of a kind of a fetish object. Um, oh, yes. And a lot of people I really respect uh you know regard this as one of the the great series uh you know of our time um so you know i'm kind of curious in your perspective why did you not end up walking away from the series and you know trying to get past the the hate fucking thing right like <laughs> if that was just it if there were like there were a lot of games that get under my skin and piss me off and i still don't keep playing them uh cuz they're they're just there's just nothing about them that's that compelling yeah. What is the hook that gets into you that's maybe a little more positive than I want to like grind this game's nose into the carpet and then shit on it? <laughs> I mean, that's how I feel when I die and when I get angry, yeah. uh, which happens a lot. And I'm a pretty emotional person. I, I get angry at games quite a bit. You can ask my girlfriend. I scream at games and I've been trying not to, but it it happens. Um, really... Really, the the non you know facetious answer is that these are really well designed games, and they really do have it's something you touched on uh, just now. They have these really fascinating, beautiful worlds that that have they convey a mood. They convey a mood of of melancholy and sort of decay, and and sort of a weird. There's a weird sadness to these worlds that is yeah. it's really appealing. And part of that, I think, is that they are only ever sort of a quarter way translated. They're they're completely indecipherable, really. You know, you get the story through these sort of 
weird cutscenes that will show you, you know, oh, this is sort of how a boss was reanimated, and maybe you get kind of a sense of why they were there or what was kind of going on. And you get this sort of very bizarre lore about, you know, what whatever it is in the, the specific game. In Bloodborne, it's about this kind of eldritch old elder gods weirdness going on and beasthood and all sorts of weird things with churches and you know, we, we actually talked about this on Thumbs at one point about, uh, you know, there's an interview with with Miyazaki, the sort of director of these games, who had talked about being inspired by his experiences as a, as a Japanese boy, as a kid, going to Europe and seeing these grand churches and cathedrals and not really having a really good sense of what the hell was actually going on or, or you know, not quite completely understanding, you know, the English translations everywhere of kind of what was going on. Um, and there's a really wonderful sense of the foreign in these games that is that is so appealing. And they're really weird. <laughs> there, you know, there's all these bizarre, twisted monsters in these kind of medieval-looking landscapes and these sort of bizarre landscapes that you never really know what's going on. And that is that mystery is is so much of the appeal. I seriously go into these games, I try to look at every piece of lore and sort of get a sense of what the hell is going on. And I love that I'll never know exactly what's going on. And that really does kind of keep me going. I really do think the storytelling in these games, that that weird kind of half storytelling is so much a part of the appeal, at least for me. Um, and And I do love it when I make progress. I really, really do get very, very happy when I make progress. Not even beating a boss, because beating the bosses is almost... God, it's such an exercise in repetition. It, it actually gets really, really tedious. Um, but when I actually get to a new area, when I kind of beat a boss and then I can go to the next landscape and I see, you know, a giant mountain with a castle sort of in the background with a dead dragon or something very dramatic and weird and kind of mysterious. That's what I live for, you know, sort of feeling like, okay, I made it a little bit further this time. I'm going to see some more weird stuff this time. That's, that's really what keeps me in it. Uh, as much as I say the hate fucking part, uh, which is, you know, also accurate. It's that it's, it's getting further in this mysterious land that, that makes me want to get through it. And, and again, like they are really well-designed games, you know, there are portions that are not as well-designed. I would argue that there are sort of uh, there are some sloppy mistakes, especially in this game. There is, um, you know, a lot of the flow of this game is kind of going from a bonfire, which is sort of like a save point or a resting point, uh, to a boss fight. So if you're not great at the game, which I am not great at the game, that means you're going to have to go to the bosses several times each. You know, I, I don't... In Bloodborne, there were two bosses I beat on my first try, and I was forever proud of those. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, you, you really do kind of have to learn their patterns and keep going and keep going and level up a little bit in between. Um, but in this game in particular, there are a couple of bonfires that are really far from the sort of boss room. So you have to go through an enemy of ran I'm sorry, an area of like tons of random enemies and die a whole bunch of times even before you get to the boss fight, which is not conducive to actually learning the boss's patterns, and uh, it's a little bit sloppy. But other than those areas, it is a really brilliantly designed game with this, you know, sort of fascinating world that has all these intricate little shortcuts and secrets, and, and you know, the combat is actually very well designed when you're not falling off ledges. Uh, so there is there is a lot to like. There is a lot to like and come back for. I just wish... 
uh, you know, there were a couple of little design concessions that would make me feel a little bit more comfortable as a player. I know they'll never actually change these things because that's what the their hardcore fans like. They like the punishing difficulty. Um, I, I do wish, again, that there were a couple of, you know, nods made to accessibility, but they're, they are good games. They are very well-designed games. It's For me, it's interesting because I think my mindset about games like this in general uh, has shifted over the years. I used to be much more uh, into simulation games yeah. and like really hardcore war games than I am right now. And I don't think those games are as different from Dark Souls as they initially appear, right? Sure. Like, you know, if you're playing a hardcore helicopter sim, uh, for instance, like, you know, landing on the deck of a like marine helicopter carrier in the midst of like heavy wind and like rolling seas that is a really hard thing to do yes <laughs> uh and requires an awful lot of repeated failure uh to, and it, and it's it's scarcely any less enraging right like i remember doing you know carrier landings in, in old sims and like you know i i i you know, I, I, you'd have to repeat it so many times before it started to sink in, right? That you, you know, you'd, every time you had to wave off a landing, you had to go all the way back around and you had to set it up from a few miles out so you could begin your approach and, and your, and, and find your glide path. Stuff like that. I used to have more time for stuff like that. And <laughs> yeah. I don't and I, and I don't think just think it it's a matter of like I used to be less busy though that's definitely part of it. It's that the thought of going through that process was more appealing. I think maybe I put a higher value on mastering those experiences uh than than I do now, right? Because in the end, uh you know, you you master that skill and then it's kind of like, well, okay, well, where, where else am I going to go in this game? Uh, and and there might be a there, there might be a lot more to do and a lot more a lot more coming. But in the meantime, uh, there's the opportunity cost, the you know the experiences you're not having, yeah. uh, and and so in the end, you've 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 kind of mastered something that in the end feels a bit mundane, right? Like you've managed to teach yourself how to land a plane uh, in this one particular video game. Fantastic, yeah, <laughs> uh, but. In the meantime, you could have been doing all this other amazing stuff uh, that would have been similar in some ways, but but maybe not not quite as not quite as demanding. You know, maybe it would have given you the gotten you to the meat of the experience a little more. And I feel like Dark Souls is a little similar to that. Like you'll you'll beat your head against a wall to basically learn how to traverse a dungeon and beat the boss at the end of it. Yeah, and that's something you can get a lot of other places. Uh, with with maybe other things that you value a little more highly, so I think you really have to you you really have to buy into that idea that the process of mastering this really difficult thing is inherently rewarding enough to hold your interest because you can get because you can get the counterfeit version of that experience real easily, right? Yes. You can play you can play lighter sims, you can play more actiony dungeon crawlers. You can do all of that. So so why are you going to like sink the time in to do the hardest version possible? And and even more so than that, I'm thinking of sort of you can also play really difficult games that don't punish you as much. You can play a game that, you know, there's a good example recently a game called Hyper Light Drifter, which is a very difficult game. You know, it's sort of a, a 
you know, to, to just make it quick, a sort of Zelda-style game, but very, very difficult. You know, the combat is difficult, and there are bosses that are, you know, known as being very, very difficult bosses, and people are saying, oh, it's kind of like a Dark Souls-style thing, but it doesn't punish you in the same way that Dark Souls does. You reload immediately. There's not, like, a long loading screen, and then, oh, you have to get through this entire area 600 times just to get to the boss. You you sort of load right outside the boss room so you can actually learn those patterns. You can actually do that sort of thing. I think I like difficult games, at least on some level, but I hate being punished. That's a that's a very, very important part of it for me. And that's, that's what really makes me angry about Dark Souls. Less the difficulty and more that just sort of feeling like, not only does it not respect my time, but it doesn't respect the learning process either because it's interrupting its own learning process just to punish me. Um, and that's, man, that sucks. <laughs> it really yeah. makes me angry. <laughs> I remember ages ago, uh, I, I feel like Dan Stapleton leveled that exact critique against uh, Bloodborne or, yeah. uh, or, or one of the other Souls games where he said it did not, did not feel like it respected his time. And he got killed for it because uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was kind of like, well, you know, it's, you know what does that even mean, right? Like what 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 one game res- one game respects like that is that is such a subjective judgment, and it's not anything inherent to the game, right? You're saying that you know, well, obviously you don't feel like it respects your time, but the game is is just sort of setting out. Well, here's what it's about. Here's what's asking of you, and how you feel about that is up to you. Um, but I sort of I, I sort of sort of understood it, right? Like it's yeah. that it, that's a totally valid subjective reaction. Like if it feels like the game is just kind of screwing around with you <laughs> and setting you up to fail, to pull the rug out from under you, and force you to repeat everything you've done, everything you've mastered. And I think that's the other part of this that that maybe is a little more frustrating for me. Once a lot of those problems are solved, they're not terribly interesting. Yes. But you will have to go through the, the, the ritual of execution a million times. Yes. Right? And, and, and that can, that can get really old. But on the other hand, I do remember, I, I like, and, and sometimes I still pursue that feeling of doing it for real, right? The, the hardest possible version of an experience a game can have. Uh, give me, give me the game that offers that. Because when you do bring all those pieces together, and you've mastered both the concepts of the game and the mechanical execution of those concepts. Um, and the game isn't pulling any punches. You've got to do this and do it right, or it's all over, and yeah. you start over. When all that comes together, the result is absolute magic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for me, like, <laughs> for me, one of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite uh, roguelike stealth games uh, is Silent Hunter 3. Uh, which is which is a a, a hardcore uh, World War II submarine simulation, and like some of my favorite memories. This is, talk about a game with high investment. Like <laughs> you literally like take a U boat out in World War II and go on patrol for months on end um, in real time, if you like. Oh, uh, wow. Though obviously you're going to compress time so that you can sort of zip around the Atlantic. But <laughs> even if you're even compressing time, there's places where you will stalk a convoy for like literal hours. Um, you know, trying to set up an attack. And if you screw it up and get it wrong, you will have wasted hours and hours of effort uh, and you'll have to break off your approach and, and, and hide from enemy destroyers. And, uh, you know, if you get it right, uh, you'll still have to, you know, flee in terror and, and try to survive uh, the counterattack. 
Um, and if it all goes wrong, you lose your ship. Like the game is, I, I, I can't remember if I played it Iron Man or if the game was inherently Iron Man. But the way <laughs> I remember it is after a ship went down, that campaign was over. Uh, so it was like, it was it was the sustained tension that's almost unlike anything I've ever played, right? Where like, you know, you've got hours invested leading up to this one moment of, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to engage the enemy. I'm going to try to do this thing and then we'll see how it goes. And that's amazing. And that's something you can't, you can't, it's very hard to fake your way toward that. It's very hard yeah. to make people feel that urgency and that competence together without making a really, really difficult game. Listening to that, I'm almost wondering if, you know, the key to these things is whether or not they feel real or true to some kind of experience. You know, like, like that tension sounds very real. Your, your brain, you probably experience the same kind of feelings that a person in a similar actual real life situation might feel, even, even if just for a moment, you, you know. And I'm wondering if Dark Souls, when it, when it's good, feels like, not real, but true to the experience of being a you know medieval warrior fighting monsters. Actually, feels like hey, it would be it would be hard, <laughs> it would be hard yeah. to fight monsters. It would be hard to bring down a giant dragon. It should feel difficult. It should feel rewarding to actually do this sort of thing. And yeah, I don't know if there's there's <laughs> I don't know if there's a way around it. Like you said, like maybe these things need to be difficult to well to give you the actual genuine feelings that, that you would feel during these experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the inherent, like for fans of the genre type thing, <laughs> right? Like, cause I think for a lot of people, it's just, it's just not worth it. Who really cares that much about doing the stupid thing? Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> you know, if you, but if you're willing to sign up for that and that's the experience you want of like, you know, doing it all with the with the safeties off, basically. If you if you, if you die in the game, you well, you don't die in real life, but certainly like hours of your life do. But it uh, hurts. that's that's yeah. all wasted. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like there's there's no other way to to get that. So it becomes kind of a difficult thing to evaluate. And I think you know that that leads to an interesting you know element of of these kinds of games. And you don't see it, I think, in simulation games as much because uh, I think. Like sim people have kind of accepted they're a weird niche, and <laughs> like they understand that their products are, are are specialty products. What you find around Dark Souls, I think, is a lot of sort of the the, the get good scrub oh, yeah. uh, type type attitude. Where, <laughs> well, if you're if you have this critique of the game, you're obviously doing it wrong. You're not good <laughs> enough at it, uh, and your opinion is invalid until you've completely mastered the game. Uh, so come back to me when you do. And I think I think the flaw in that logic is always mastering the game is something that only happens if it's a if it's if the pitch the game is throwing uh, connects with you. Yes, yeah, that's a very that's a perfect analogy for it. Yeah, it's and also it's it's just so. Oh, it's so obnoxious to just hear get good over and over and over again without you know the presence of actual advice or. <laughs> It's <laughs> something, something useful. Uh, so much of this game feels like, you know, a Karate Kid montage yeah. of, of you know, okay, here's how to break the board or, you know, whatever it is. And, and doing it over and over and over again with the sort of stern master looking over your shoulder. And 
the get good comments are always kind of like, okay, thanks, Stern Master. I could have used, you know, you're not the Stern Master. You're supposed to be my friend who gives me advice outside of the Stern Master. I've already got one. I don't need 10 other uh, Stern Masters. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, that sort of ties into my experiences in sim gaming, war gaming, where it becomes this really esoteric niche thing. And because people have mastered it, they assign a higher value to it. Yes. Because they've mastered it. And so when people come from the outside and they say, well, I don't, I don't get this. I don't really, I'm not sure this is for me. I don't, I don't like it. I'm not even sure this is good. Um, you'll, you'll have that immediate, it's, it's an opportunity to feel superior to people, right? Yes. That, you know, it's, it's, I had like, you know, here's this completely like made up experience. It's this complete fantasy of, you know, uh, you know, you're this undead warrior who's, you know, fighting all these, uh, fighting all these monsters. I'm going to assign a magic value to this uh, because <laughs> this is this is real gaming. This is what takes real skill, and that skill is valuable. And so, if people don't have it, or if it's too hard for people, that just further vindicates my belief that playing this game makes me somehow better. <laughs> and that that shit is poisonous. And you yeah. see it in war games all the time. Uh, it's it, it just gets it gets super old, uh, and it's it's a regular feature of. Of any kind of competitive or or really demanding high skill game uh, is that you know I can you know I can I can I can fly the fictional I can fly the fictional A10 better than anyone else can uh, <laughs> and because you can't do that you're a dummy and you don't get it that yeah. that stuff is toxic yeah it, it really sucks and it, and it does feel like it's very very much a part of gamer culture if that's even a, a real thing very much a you know, showing your superiority and, and waving it around and, and, and using that to sort of, you know, put people's noses in it. And it's like, man, don't, you know, can't we, can't we celebrate these things? Can't we celebrate these things and, and have constructive criticism instead of just being jerks all day? But I suppose that's another discussion for another day. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, commitment, sacrifice. Way too much time put into things. It's inconclusive, and it's and it's certainly difficult to <laughs> to put a bow on. But I think that probably means it's time for us to move on to our weekend correspondence after a quick message from our sponsors. Hey, Rob, I've been meaning to talk to you about something for a long time. What's that? Uh, it's about your glasses. They're uh, they're kind of trash. These are or were great glasses. Um. I think it might be time for some new ones. But I'm a freelance writer. I, I can't afford new glasses. I don't have new glasses money. Certainly not nice ones like these used to be. Well, see, that's where you're wrong, Rob. Have you ever heard of Warby Parker? They specialize in giving people designer frames at affordable prices. People like you, Rob. You can go to warbyparkertrial.com weekend and choose five frames that you like. Warby Parker will ship them to you for free. You get to try them out for five days and you pick out what you like. They'll pay shipping on whatever you send back. That is warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend. Danielle, I've been meaning to talk to you about something for a while now. And what's that? It's your tampons. They're trash. But it's okay. Most tampons are trash. 
Yeah, I know. That's why I use Lola. I went to primylola.com slash weekend. You know, and you I got- should really just use Lola. They're a company that sends you 100% all natural tampons for women who care about what they use inside their own bodies. Are you seriously mansplaining my own tampons Lola comes to me? with a simple, customizable subscription. I know how you probably hate making frantic trips to the drugstore to replace your tampons, but with Lola, you don't need to worry about it. They will send you a box of tampons with your own custom blend of sizes every month. They're made of all-natural cotton, no bizarre additives or harmful chemicals. Lola tampons are great. That's why I go to trymylola.com slash weekend for a monthly subscription to 100% natural tampons. You should go to tampons. trymylola.com slash weekend. Your first two-box order is usually $18, but it can be yours for just $9. Again, that's trymylola.com slash weekend. Our first letter comes from Sam, the Architect Gamer, and Sam writes... Hey, Idle Weekend. I'm a longtime Idle Network listener, but first-time messenger. As a recent architecture school graduate, I have finally gotten the chance to play The Witcher 3 in all its glory after work. Yay. The game's most notable feature is Novigrad. Before release, it was touted as the most lively and authentic medieval city ever created for a video game. Witcher 3's Novigrad does succeed in feeling lively, but fetishizes the most twisty, crampy parts of existing medieval cities, without thinking about the underlying evolutionary logic that informs them. Because of this, Novigrad has a high barrier of entry for gamers to naturally navigate around the city in a reasonable threshold of time, which leaves the player with two options. A, keeping the mini-map on and having your eyes glued to the line of dots to guide you, which distracts you from building a visual vocabulary of the space you are in and the routes you need to take. Or you can turn off the mini-map and only use the mini-map to make mental notes of point A to B, then allowing yourself to get a bit lost so you can actually start to recognize routes, landmarks, etc. as real-world tools. Even real-life medieval cities arrange themselves in logic that allow, them, uh, that allow people to quickly navigate them without over-reliance on maps. I personally feel like Novigrad was a victim of focusing on the, only the topsy-turvy, back-alley, slummy parts of medieval cities. In real life, these parts do exist, but are always contained by some sort of form of arterials, making them feel like modules. Novigrad feels like the whole city is like this, with the exception of the road into the main square, and then the road leading up to Temple Isle. Luckily, the quests in Witcher 3 go a long way to helping you get familiar with the city. Thus, I do love Novigrad now. Danielle, given your love for Disneyland, what balance do you think game designers should take when designing their open-world cities? Should they strike the play- should they strike the players with immediate magical moments and navigational clarity, a la Disneyland, or focus on creating authentic real-world cities with the potential of missing the mark or having to rely on navigational crutches? Should more open-world game designers hire architects as consultants or open-world-specific level designers? Oh, wow. Um, well, I have no <laughs> no knowledge of architecture, uh, but my gut says that the sort of Disney model uh, is, is pretty smart. It helps, you know, it helps people sort of navigate things. It helps people find what they're looking for. And I think you can get away with a lot in terms of art design. I think that you can totally fake it. Um, you know, you can fake a feeling, you can fake a facade, you can make people feel as if they are sort of looking at the real thing without ever actually making the real thing. Uh, so I think for a lot of games, you you really, the Disney model kind of can't go wrong. They, they really know what they're doing in terms of making you feel as if you're in a real space and uh, feel as if you're kind of in that world without probably having anything to do with, with reality. <laughs> um, with that said, though, 
Sure. I think it would be great if more architects actually, you know, worked on games and were able to work on games. Um, a really recent example of, of something I thought was really cool, again, with completely limited knowledge of architecture, was uh, Kitty Horror Show's Anatomy, which was sort of a horror game about the architecture of a house, of a sort of domestic space. Um, and uh, Clarice Siron, uh, who is an architect, I believe, uh, actually wrote a review for Zam. Um sort of talking about architecture and talking about how that game used architecture. So I think there are some really awesome and incredible sort of ways that architects can actually sort of use their skills to enhance games. Uh, but in terms of, of the Disney model, I, I don't know if it's, uh, if it's ever going to kind of go away. And, and I think it is very useful for game design. What was the game you were just talking about? Uh, Kitty Horror Show's Anatomy. Okay. It's pretty rad. So, yeah, this this letter struck me because I'd actually just gone through this whole arc with Novigrad, uh, <laughs> where I had this I had this point where I was like, I, I, I am so in love with the Witcher's world, I don't want anything between me and that world. And I turned <laughs> off all the UI. Oh, could, man. Basically. Like I, like, I basically played that game with a health bar and, like, nothing. And that actually worked. Out in the countryside, I'd gotten pretty good at sort of navigating the countryside because there were landmarks, right? Like you knew like certain forks in the road. Uh, you learned to recognize certain villages. It's a simpler landscape. It's less dense. Yeah. Uh, you can sort of navigate by sight and feel a lot more easily. Where that started to break down was Novigrad because of exactly uh, what Sam is talking about here, which is that Ultimately, all these spaces just kind of feel um, clumped together and arbitrary. And mm. so, like, you know, it's – and I think the problem is this. Uh, you know, we're both from we, – we, we both lived in Boston a fair portion of our lives. Yes. And if you took Boston and then just destroyed all the street signs <laughs> and then destroyed the names of squares – and you just had the layout of Boston. How would you ever learn to really navigate it? And I don't think you could. And yeah. and the only thing that makes Boston navigable is that these places aren't just made up spaces. They actually do have things that you then learn to associate with the, with them, right? Like, you know, you learn to navigate by the Sitco sign. Yeah. Uh, you know, you 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 do have these landmarks, you but I think the most important thing is the real places. Like, you know, there is something on Commonwealth Avenue. There's there's, you know, you can there's stores there you want to go to. If you took out if you if you sort of turned Boston into just a space that you had to explore from one quest to another, and nothing had a name, but nothing had an identity, uh, then it would be very hard to find things even on recognizable streets because the street has no inherent meaning. Yeah. And I think for me, that was kind of what I was running up against is that it wasn't just a matter of, of city layout for me. It's that you're playing a video game city. And so yes. there is no place that you're going to have to go back to. There is no like, you know, you don't, it's not like you're going to be running the store every week. To, to to go deal with this, I did. I did eventually find a barber I liked in the city, uh, but it's. But I, I the 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 fact that the city itself is fictional, I think, made it hard to uh, made it made it hard to sort of learn to navigate by feel. Uh, but I, I I do think as well that some of these criticisms of the city are are probably pretty spot on. Right? It is yeah. this. It, it it is this um really overdone. Car, like slum medieval city uh, with only a few nice-ish neighborhoods, but even they're really like compressed into small areas uh, abutting, you know, kind of slums. So, yeah, it was it was interesting reading this because it sort of explained to me why 
the you know map free approach I took in the countryside in The Witcher started to break down in Novigrad and why I found that city so maddeningly confusing <laughs> once I got away from uh, the waterfront and the central square. Our next letter comes in from Hux. Hux writes, Hi, Weekenders. Love the new show. You guys both have great insights and interesting views. Makes for a good listen when combined with your rapport. More than once, you've talked about aspects of reviewing and how best to approach it. But with the upcoming release of Paradox's Stellaris, I've realized something I would be interested to hear your thoughts on. I'm a big fan of the 4X genre, space 4X games especially, but Stellaris has the audience in a buzz because it's one of the few entries in the genre that seems to be trying to really innovate rather than just copy the Master of Orion 2 formula. Although this has led to a few good games, there have been a lot of tepid injuries into the subgenre. However, when I'm playing these games, I often have real trouble approaching them critically. I am both a fan of the genre itself and hungry for more entries into it, so I'm willing to overlook flaws for quite a few hours of gameplay in some cases, leading me to look back and say, I put 50 hours into what? As reviewers, how do you approach games that inherently appeal to you? Do you have trouble distancing yourself from a game's genre or premise if it's something that you like? For or example, uh, if Rob was presented with Burnout Paradise 2 or Danielle with Crazy Taxi 3, how would you guys overcome your presumable excitement? Do reviewers who specialize in particular genres find this a bigger problem as they are presumably big, fan, big fans of the genre? Or conversely, does it make it easier when you have such intimate knowledge to be critical in a fair way? Thanks for the show. Have a great weekend. Hux. I think... I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I think uh, so too. <laughs> I, I think definitely like being a genre enthusiast can help you assess games within a genre on a deeper level than than a stranger would. Like there's a reason I don't review many or hardly any RPGs just because like while I can critique story and stuff like that, I'm a little shakier on things like, you know, the way a game actually plays, right? And the way it handles Things like combat, uh, just because it's not it's, it's not a specialty specialty of mine. I don't have the frame of reference. Um, and, and sometimes I think there's actual real value in having people who come from outside the genre evaluate a game because there's a lot of reflexive um, accepting of assumptions that happens if you're if you're deep into a genre, right? That like you lose sight of conventions that might be baffling or off-putting for people who haven't drunk the Kool-Aid yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I think there, I think there is value in that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you, you do want people who can sort of interrogate the design on a deeper level based on familiarity with the, with the other inspirations, uh, and the other types of games that this game is sort of channeling. So, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing, but, but, but I think when it comes to the enthusiasm angle, um, that's, that's where it gets a little a little trickier uh because like going back to my homeworld review from earlier this this year uh homeworld deserts of Karak, it my review is probably a little more informed than than I would otherwise like by my relief that there was a new homeworld game that it was good. <laughs> sure. Uh and having gotten a little more distance from the game, I'm not sure I'd walk away from from any part of that review but i'm just sitting here knowing that like well if i if i had to do over again now six months later um or well four months later i would do it differently i would probably have there would be a different approach in that review than the one i took uh that was sort of written at the end of a of a long weekend with the game 
but uh, but that's kind of rare. I think for uh, you know the the number of times there, there's there's two things that I think are more likely. Uh, one, uh, enthusiasm can give way really quickly to thermonuclear disappointment. Uh, go <laughs> yes. listen to the three moves ahead on Rome two, and <laughs> listen to what we did to that game when it sort of not only didn't follow up well on Shogun two, which we all loved. Uh, but also just completely, you know, stumbled when it came to creating a new Rome game. Uh, so, I mean, that was the case where people came with really good will and high expectations. And when the game failed those, uh, man, with those expectations and that good will, it was all used to just bludgeon the hell out of that game. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think also just I, certainly for me, I don't know how, how this is for you, Danielle, but like I feel like enthusiasm increasingly rarely survives first contact with reality. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like to think I'm I'm actually a pretty enthusiastic person. Um I I I'm kind of like a little puppy dog, so I definitely have this problem where enthusiasm does kind of melt away once I once I start actually sort of digging into something. Um I've found the most helpful way of dealing with that is just to be so busy that when something actually comes out, I didn't actually have the chance to get all excited and hyped up for for the release, which has happened a little bit this year when I've been like, oh, oh, right. Skyward Sword is is not Skyward Sword. Excuse me. Twilight Princess HD is out. Oh, cool. I, I, I'm excited about that. Um, being busy, it, it helps. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It, it's a double edged sword. It always will be. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting. I actually, believe it or not, I did the review impressions, review impressions, not the sort of full review, but the um, sort of my impressions of Dark Souls um, due to a uh, so whole series of circumstances where all of my freelancers at Zam who are, you know, the really big Dark Souls fans, they were all reviewing it for another site. Um, <laughs> and everybody else that was a big fan didn't have the platform we were actually getting the game on early. So it was kind of like, well, I better go educate myself and, and get this done. And I wrote a review from somewhat of an outsider's perspective. Now, not a complete outsider. Obviously, this was not my first Souls experience, but, you know, having played Bloodborne and, and a tiny bit of, of Demon Souls, as we said before, um, I was kind of an outsider, not, you know, a hardcore Souls fan. And I and I do think those are those are valuable reviews sometimes as well, especially for something that is so completely... You know, you know exactly what you're getting with a Souls game. It's it's pretty sort of calcified as its own sort of thing at this point. So I think those are useful reviews. People who are who know it, you know, certainly enough to be, uh, I, I like to think, uh, you know, offer educated opinions, but but not somebody who's a super fan. Um, that's very helpful. Also, there is a Crazy Taxi Three, but I actually haven't played it because it came out on the original Xbox, and that was a platform I don't have and didn't have at the time. So good to know. All right, our next email comes from Cody. Hey, Danielle and Rob. Your discussion about Let's Plays last week was a great listen and very enli- very enlightening. It's a form of entertainment that is pretty central to my life and has been for a while now. However, there was a small side argument that I feel was left out. The accessibility of games as a medium. Hmm. What I mean by this is how easy or difficult it is for any one person to play the types of games that are coming out at any given time. For instance, two of the games you mentioned, That Dragon, Cancer, and Firewatch are mostly only available on PC. I know Firewatch is on PS4, but I don't have that console, and I imagine many others don't either. 
These are both games that I would have loved to play, but currently do not have any financial means to actually do so. I don't have the money to purchase a PS4 or gaming PC, and can't at the moment think of when I will. If I was, de- if I were desperate to, pl- to experience these games, that would leave me the only the option of seeing them through a Let's Play. This conundrum made me think about the accessibility of games in general as an art form compared to other mediums. Movies, books, television, theater, dance, music, these are all modes of entertainment and art that usually have an entry fee, but one that is relatively low, I believe, when compared to games. Throw in the impending release of VR, truly driving the depths of what video games as a medium has to offer, seems to be much more pricey than its companion art forms. That's a really, really good point, actually, and and very, very worth bringing up. Um, yeah, I mean, especially for folks who who like to think of games as you know a personal expression or in an art form, uh, which I do. I'm certainly among those ranks. It is really expensive. It is sort of a, a you know middle class and higher kind of art form, and that can be sort of disappointing and and against sort of at cross purposes with the idea of games as a very personal form of entertainment. Um, you know, the sort of itchio space and sort of single person, you know, making games with, with lower end equipment hopefully helps mitigate a, a tiny part of this. But yeah, I, I mean, like we're really privileged. We get to, we get to have this nice technology and play all these experiences and, and we don't always think about people who really don't have, you know, maybe they have a smartphone that, that is something that a lot of folks with less means might have. Um, but that's it. And, and that means UK, that's your computer, basically. And that's, you know, you can't play anything that's more demanding than a smartphone game and, and watch things on YouTube. And if we are going to take it seriously that, you know, this is a, an art form that we need to celebrate and we need to show off, uh, then maybe we shouldn't be as, as stingy about sort of let's plays and, and other ways of sort of celebrating and criticizing, you know, using critical you know, the criticizing in the term of, of offering criticism, not just uh, saying critical things. Um, maybe we should embrace that side of it. You know, books, movies, and TV, uh, I guess they're, well, libraries make books effectively free and movies and TV, I guess are pretty accessible through like things like Netflix, right? So if you got yeah. an internet connection and pay a low monthly fee, you get access to a lot of stuff though. Not a lot of the stuff that's currently relevant. Uh, mm. is is the thing right um so i i think that's that's an issue uh theater dance music boy that stuff is not remotely accessible <laughs> right especially dance and theater yeah like completely yeah, <laughs> yeah like and like and and even even going to like smaller like local theaters like you know i, I like i well, i tried to do that for a little while here in boston man it adds up it's it's it, not it it's it's so yeah. much more expensive than a night at the movies it's it's not even funny uh, music, you know, if you want to go see like an, 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 an actual, like, you know, major act or, or major oh, regional yeah. act, yeah. again, pretty damn expensive, uh, and, and not, not super accessible, but uh, you know, again, Spotify does make a lot of popular music, uh, super accessible. So I don't know. I just, I just think like the, 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 the buy-in problem is, is kind of ever present yeah. and it's, it's, it's not that. Let me put it this way. Uh, the, the, the barrier to games is actually pretty low if you don't want to see the new stuff. You know, if you have, if, if you even have like a halfway decent computer that you use for work, there's a ton of games you can play on it. 
the issue is that you know all the newer stuff, uh, as with as with movies and TV, uh, requires a bit more of a buy-in. And in video games, the buy-in is actually it, it is much higher. You know, you're, you know, buy your buy your four hundred dollar or three hundred fifty dollar like you know luxury entertainment box. Yeah. Um, that that is that is a, a a tricky that is a tricky thing and absolutely does affect the accessibility of a game. Um, but yeah, yeah. At the same time, like what supports this form of art is literally just people buying the games, right? Like, <laughs> and, and that's and that's that, there's there's the rub, right? Capitalism is, is the problem here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and since I don't have any reasonable alternatives to to capitalism to offer right now, like <laughs> I just kind of feel like if it's if if people who make games start to identify, like feel like there are problems with people just showcasing the games with the thinnest veneer of of added performance or art um i'm i'm hard pressed to argue with them right because because from from their standpoint the only thing they have to sell is the experience of playing that game and if someone else is offering it for free then that can potentially become a problem and the accessibility argument uh while i'm sympathetic to it uh, it's it's just a case where I think that the interests of creators and and people who who can, who don't have the means to to pursue the hobby as much as they might like, uh, those interests are just going to be intention, and I don't I I am hard pressed to find a way around it. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. Um, and also I do I do want to say I, I appreciate Cody's point, however, about VR as well, <laughs> which will split the market even oh. further with the haves and have-nots, and it's going to be a little bit of a shit show for a while. Yeah, I think. a little bit. But but again, like, do you remember how like what a luxury like item the iPhone one was? Oh yes. Like for a year, a year and a half, it was like, oh, you got an iPhone one. Oh man, let me see that. That's oh, that's crazy. I've never <laughs> it's seen real such nice. a thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like now, man, like. You know, I just bought my first phone in years and years and years, and I didn't buy any designer phone. I got like I'm on Cricket Wireless, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I need my I need my I need my cheap phone. That's right. Uh, and I got an awesome smartphone for like a hundred dollars, and that was the ritzy version. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. In time, like it, it does. This stuff does become more accessible. It just sucks to want to be on the first wave, and unfortunately, you're sort of stuck being on the third wave. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Our next email comes from Andrew. Andrew writes, Hey, Idle Weekenders. A lot of critical shade has been thrown at films, TV shows, and other creative works for taking the wrong kind of inspiration from video games. It's not always framed as a bad thing, but the term, it's like a live-action video game, usually refers to a pretty narrow set of influences, like the heavy use of CG, the presence of certain kinds of action sequences that were, of course, influenced by film in the first place, and the use of some tropes and settings that have become associated with AAA games over time. I don't think any of that is necessarily a bad thing to be inspired by, but it's certainly not the only thing to draw uh, to draw from from working with other mediums. My question is, what are the kinds of lessons you would most like to see artists and other mediums learning from the video game form? Or alternately, uh, alternatively, do you have any examples of creative works that have already done so that you think work particularly well? Best, Andrew. So I think the thing that games are best at, uh, if we if we look at sort of what what what's great in in what medium. Uh, partially it's immersion, feeling completely part of a world, feeling like you're actually in a world, existing in that space, doing whatever interesting activities that the designers have given you to do in that world. But that's kind of why I play games. 
um, you know, the, the stories, being immersed in a story, being a part of a story. So I suppose if there are any ways to make things, experiences even more immersive, which I know is, is difficult with something like film, but it's something like interactive theater does that incredibly well, you know, that, so theater has, has sort of taken some cues, not from video games, certainly, but we, you can make the argument that there are certain theater experiences that are very game-like, uh, you know, Sleep No More and uh, Then She Fell, a couple of things in New York that I've experienced that have been like, wow, this is like playing a game but better because it's my real body in a real actual world where sets were designed a certain way that is extremely cool and also um the idea of interacting and actually sort of making choices that matter to the story or to the world again i'm not entirely sure i mean there were experiments in the 90s with sort of like interactive film you know People would be in a theater with a button and, and you could sort of vote on what uh, what branch the narrative takes. I don't think that's necessarily the way to go. But if there were some clever ways of adding interactivity to other media, that I think would go a long way into sort of showing off what's good about games. What I'd like to see, let's see, this is, I'm not sure this is something game like other media need to learn from video games. I think it's something they used to be used to know better and have kind of lost what what hmm. i kind of enjoy about video games uh certainly the ones i tend to gravitate towards is they do allow allow a little space for uh exploration and contemplation mm. uh the like a lot of games i play involve a fair bit of silence or just passively watching something for a little while uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a, a totally passive experience like uh, everybody's gone to the rapture, but like even in the game like Dishonored, yeah. the nature of that game forces me to sit still in an environment a lot of times and just sort of watch a scene unfold, uh, watch watch life play out in front of me. And I feel like increasingly, uh, both in a lot of television and uh, especially in in any kind of mainstream films now, uh, there is an there is an allergy toward slowness uh yeah. there's there, there's a wariness of of just letting um a few minutes go by without something immediately plot or character relevant happen and so i i think something that i kind of wish uh you know I, that you know <laughs> that, that i wish some of these these uh, other media would, would learn from video games is is that sometimes just watching and exploring a space visually uh, is is exciting, right? Like if if you watch a lot of old Altman movies, uh, the camera's like a character in in the world, uh, and you're you're kind of eavesdropping uh, on on the world and, and seeing, you know, the the term I think was was cinema verite, right? Yeah. Yes. And I, and I feel like that's that's gone away a little bit. Uh, as things have become more and more edited, edited and artificially paced, and it's uh, increasingly difficult for me to to find that interesting, and and so I think that's something that weirdly video games uh, have have ended up doing a bit better. Our next email comes from Austin. Hi guys, I was wondering if you ever suffer from progression fatigue. Open world games are usually the most fun when you've got all the tools at your disposal. Unfortunately, in many cases, you've got to play for dozens of hours to get those tools. For example, why did it take me four hours to get the ability to carry more than two guns in Far Cry 4 or Borderlands? Why did I have to play such boring side quests in Assassin's Creed Syndicate just to get gear that would make, make the far more interesting sandbox assassinations more fun? 
The same can be said for more narrative games. After putting in 21 hours over six months, I finally started using console commands in The Witcher 3. <laughs> if I have 45 minutes to play a game, I don't want to spend 15 of them puttering around in crafting menus or collecting flowers. I don't want to go kill monsters to be at the suggested level for the next bit of story. I just want to go play that story. I know some of my fatigue comes from having two kids, a full-time job, and art and writing freelance book that's approaching full-time job status. With such limited gaming time, I don't have patience for grinding. I just wish there was an option after you get your bearings in the game to skip all the grinding and get to the good stuff. How do you guys handle this as reviewers? From 2007 to 2012, I freelanced for GameSpot, so I know the time crunch can make it worse. I was once assigned two Harvest Moon games back-to-back with a tight deadline. (laughs) By the end, I vowed to never play another digital chore simulator. Sorry, Stardew Valley. Being annoyed with the progression of those games definitely had an impact on my review and my attitude toward the whole game. I know the recent Zelda game on 3DS lets you rent gear, which effectively sidesteps the standard plotting Zelda progression. Perhaps we could have more of that in games. Love to hear your thoughts. Oh boy, I feel that really hard. There was there was one time when I was at Polygon where I had three uh, sort of chory RPGs in a row. I, it, there was like a Harvest Moon style game, and then then a you know a, a dungeon crawler, and then something else. It, it was ridiculous. Yeah, it, it it can get very tiring and very tedious, and it's obviously much worse in some genres than others. RPGs are obviously really really terrible offenders you know you might get an 80 hour game that is you know half of it is just grinding and grinding and grinding and leveling and dark souls is also obviously very uh, guilty of this it's funny reading this letter at the end of you know sort of this whole section where we've been talking a lot about time and compressing time and sort of having time to have peace and quiet which is the opposite of grinding obviously grinding is just sort of busy work and chores um in terms of when it happens in a review game you know, you, you just kind of try to get through it as quickly as possible. And if you have a, a, a tight deadline, obviously, for a review, you aren't necessarily going to go off the critical path. You're just going to mainline that thing and just try to get through it as quickly as possible. The term used to be poop socket, which makes no sense because, you know, you would need to actually use both hands to actually do a poop sock maneuver, but whatever. It's I fine. don't think we need to think of that deeply into the term. Yeah, I think you're right. I just, I, I've always thought about it and I, I can't help myself from thinking of the visual. Um <laughs> But yeah, I, I this also kind of goes back to the idea of games respecting your time and not putting in so much filler with the killer, so to speak. I, I'm very sympathetic to this point of view. You know, I don't have kids, obviously. Uh, if I did, I'd be even more ridiculously busy. But I, th- I think we're all really busy adults. We all have, you know, jobs and lives and potentially partners and pets and hobbies and all sorts of stuff. And I don't want to play the filler either. And, you know, I feel like there's obviously pressure, especially with a higher budget game, to put in lots of filler, lots of extra missions, lots of things to do, because a very vocal minority of the player base wants that stuff. They want to be able to slap, you know, 80 hours of gameplay on the box, and there are people who want that 80 hours of gameplay. But I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the majority of players just want to play the good stuff, the the 40 hours or the 10 hours or the five hours of the really good stuff condensed without any of the the sort of other stuff filled in. So I understand the reason why it exists, but man, don't I wish that more games were just cut down to the good stuff as well. I hate this stuff. Yeah. Just, for buying, just generally, I just, I just hate it. Uh, and I think it, so much of it is just about artificially extending the life of a game. And I think, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of the games this crops up in are kind of your 
shallower open world games. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let me put it that way. Because um, I don't think like I think if I think if, like if you gave if they gave you everything that you can do in Far Cry uh, right at the start. You would discover that Far Cry is not a terribly interesting first-person shooter. Yeah. Nor that interesting an open-world like survival game. Like it's just, it's just kind of you know. When I talked about that counterfeit version of an experience earlier in the show, we're talking about Dark Souls. Like to me, that's kind of what Far Cry turned into after Far Cry Two. Right? Sure. It's like Far Cry Two is the game where you had to plan about plan things out and like recon and stuff would blow up in your face, and it was kind of fun seeing how that would all unfold. Uh, Far Cry 3 was very much the version of, well, what if we just try to make it feel like you're, you know, a cool commando, <laughs> uh, but really you're just going up to things and just pressing pressing buttons until they die. How do you make that cool? Uh, well, you, in, in, in that case, you, you know, you give people um, nothing to use at the start, and then you unlock things that, like, give them these artificial power spikes that have nothing to do with their growth and understanding of the game. Uh, so I, I think, you know, the term lazy devs gets tossed around way too much, but I do think a progression system is the laziest and easiest way. And I, and probably that these are, these are things in its favor and make it appealing from a production standpoint. Yeah. It is a very easy way to make your game sticky. It is a very easy way to make your game have apparent depth that maybe the systems, uh, underlying it don't necessarily justify uh so i i I think you know that's that's where this stuff comes from and i just as a reviewer i tend to avoid games like this uh to to be quite honest (laughs) and and to be fair that's this is the one this is the one nice thing about being freelance and never (laughs) getting to review the big triple a games right because there's always an editor on staff who wants to review that stuff uh and so i don't have to encounter this stuff very much uh which is good because like playing this playing games like this would just be completely cost ineffective as a freelancer yeah um i i had to turn down a gta 5 review because i was like no like even for even for a few hundred dollars uh even you know no it's just it's just just not worth my time uh so so i tend to stay away from that stuff because i'm not i and i think the review experience in in those cases is super artificial yeah, you know these games are meant to be enjoyed for weeks, months, and trying to cram it into a week is crazy. It makes you not necessarily enjoy it, which can impact yep. you know certainly your feelings on the game as a reviewer. Yeah, you're absolutely right on all counts. Uh, this is this is the conflation of a million different kind of problems in the industry kind of coming together. <laughs> I think, but man, do I wish that the standard length of a game, like the you know the average game, not every game should be this. Some should be shorter, some should be longer. But I sure wish the average length of a game was three to eight hours. That would be really cool, and I would really appreciate that. All right, I think it's time for us to discuss our weekend projects. Rob, have you been reading, watching, listening to anything that's really kind of setting your world alight? Oh, boy, that's really overstating how I feel about this. Uh, so <laughs> I am currently wrapping up the first season of Billions. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a... Uh, I can't remember if it's Showtime or Cinemax, man. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's Paul Giamatti... Okay. And uh, Damian Lewis from Band of Brothers, who played Winters in Band of Brothers. Oh, okay. uh, he was the dude in Homeland. Uh, he was the, he was the male lead of Homeland for uh, for a couple seasons before his character left that show. Uh, it's 
it's eminently watchable garbage. <laughs> it's like really slickly produced and it's got an amazing cast. And I couldn't begin to tell you what's compelling about it or like what like <laughs> and yet I can't stop, right? And the interesting thing is I, I showed up for Paul Giamatti. Sure. Uh but at this point I'd be happy if his character like died in a fire. Um <laughs> Which is kind of a problem for that for that show, really. But so so billions is is supposed to be this sort of take on uh, the, the the global economy and and Wall Street. Uh, it's it's Chuck Rhodes, the Paul Giamatti character, is this crusading uh, you know U.S. attorney who's trying to bring down Bobby Axelrod. Oh God, uh, who's this this douchebaggy uh, like hedge fund guy uh, who is. You know, this utterly ruthless and corrupt money manager. And that's the Damien Lewis character. And the, the twist is that Paul Giamatti's uh, character's wife, uh, Wendy, is sort of the in-house uh, psychotherapist <laughs> at Axelrod's company. She's the person who takes all the, uh, you know, alpha dog head cases that are in that in that company and gets them all on their game where they can go and, and make millions for, for the team. <laughs> and it's the conflict of interest because, you know, Chuck obviously wants to bring Bobby down and Wendy's caught in the middle. But all that's just the setup for a show where really not a lot ever happens. Um <laughs> Like, like it's ostensibly about this, this this duel between these two guys, and one's trying to put the other in jail. But that's sort of this. That is a conflict that just sort of exists, and the two sides are so mismatched that it's not even that compelling. Uh, the, the, so what I what I, what I've ended up watching it for is just um. I've just started to really enjoy the the other performances in this show and uh, just how slickly produced the damn thing is. Like, it really is like, you know, all the like all the douchiest parts of movies like uh, Wall Street and uh, Boiler Room. Yeah. It's just sort of piped into my living room every week, and it's it's weirdly enjoyable. But but I say that, and, and yet then there are then there are like these weird flashes of like the the human stakes involved, right? Like the people sort of get caught between the two sides and just sort of ground down uh, in, in the middle of it. So there's lots of good there's lots of good like you know character work in this show. There's lots of good supporting characters that end up being really interesting because they end up humanizing a conflict that is very abstract. And I kind of I kind of can't stop watching the show even though I I fundamentally am in this, I I fundamentally have this problem where I know the show isn't very good. <laughs> I know it's not really going anywhere. Uh and, and yet I'm I've I've become invested in the characters and oh my god, I'm watching a soap opera. I really do feel that, though. Sometimes I just feel like I really just want a thing that's compelling for me to watch while I eat dinner and, and yes. maybe do something on my computer. But, like, I want a thing to be there sort of occupying some of the space in my brain, but not all of it. <laughs> so I completely understand what you're saying with this. I watched the full, very short, but full run of With Bob and David, or I guess it's just W slash Bob and David, whatever, With Bob and David, uh, which is a sketch show 
uh, starring and written by and whatever, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross and a lot of the performers and writers that made Mr. Show uh, back in the in the late 90s. It's sort of a very high concept sketch show where sometimes they do really interesting things with structure and the jokes and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, it, it was really, really, really funny and well-produced. And the jokes were very sharp. And you know, obviously, it's, it's sort of like a sketch show with a budget. Um, although, you know, not, not a budget in terms of, oh, you know, it was incredibly, incredibly slickly produced or anything. But the kind of budget that gets you talent like Bob Odenkirk and, and David Cross, basically. Um, there are a couple of sketches that are just absolutely wonderful and in general the comedy really really does kind of punch up which is always you know i I know that's sort of the everybody's going to say i'm a sjw whatever but it's true i really do prefer that there are a couple of weird jokes that are are a little bit eh, that i would i would sort of warn our maybe some of our trans friends about Uh, there's one joke where yeah, the joke is something entirely different, but they sort of threw in a trans reference, and it was just sort of like, where did that come from? And they even make fun of themselves later on in the show for making that reference, so it's kind of like they knew they were kind of doing sort that. Sort of put a lampshade on it? Yeah, they kind of yeah. did, So, but it's still like, ah, oh, that was still shitty, guys. Like, there was kind of no need. It's it, it wasn't, like, exactly making fun of trans women, but it was just sort of there and a little weird, so I would I would say there is a little bit of that. Um other than that, uh, I thought it was just incredibly funny, well-produced sketch show. And, you know, I, I, I love comedy. I have kind of a very high bar for sketch comedy in particular. I used to do improv. I did improv for a really long time, actually. And I, I appreciate the sort of just general chaos and fun spirit of, of that sort of comedy, of the, you know, dorkiest forms of comedy, which I consider to be sketch and uh, improv, basically. Um so I, I really, really love it when something actually connects and actually makes me laugh, which very few sketch shows actually make me laugh. Um, I enjoy them for sort of their absurdity a lot of the time, but I don't always, you know, guffaw. But with Bob and David, several of the sketches really, really made me laugh. And I'm, I'm still sort of thinking about them later on, which you know, that's that's a very that's a very high mark yeah. for sketch. <laughs> and then I'm like thinking about the absurdity of something and actually like, Oh man, that was, that was good. That, they got me on that one. I would say the first episode is actually the weakest episode. I watched it with my girlfriend and I was like, yeah, this is fine. You know, it's not, it's not the most hilarious thing in the world, uh, but it gets so much better. And actually the fifth episode, which is sort of the final episode is something of a documentary slash mockumentary where they go into how they wrote and why they wrote all of the sketches. And it's fascinating and in itself hilarious. It sort of shows them in the writer's room, laughing at each other, goofing off and sort of like how they actually make their jokes better. So it's actually a fascinating little sort of look at the process. Uh, Very, very highly recommended with that slight caveat that the first episode is a little bit, little bit weaker than the rest and that there is sort of a weird little uh, kind of bizarre trans reference that might honestly rub people the wrong way. And I, I wouldn't fault them for being rubbed the wrong way on that. Awesome. So I think with that, it's time for us to wind down our weekends and and get out there and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. 
Folks, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate us on iTunes and please do tell a friend about us. It helps us out so, so much and we really, really appreciate it if you do that. And again, we've been getting some great, wonderful questions uh, at, in our mailbox and we really appreciate that as well. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Okay, I just had a cool idea that might be even better than the stuff you wrote. Please go for it. I'm going to mansplain tampons to you using the marketing copy. <laughs> yes, please. That so, sounds really good.